Yeah, well, good morning, each one, and it's uh, just good to have you here. It's uh, been good to uh, be here for the uh, entire service so far. Thanks, Autumn, for sharing. I, my heart is always thrilled when I hear those kinds of things being shared in the body. I just really believe that that's what body life is all about. When we can find a safe place to talk about some of our personal things, that's really, to me, is, is very powerful. So I want to thank you, and let's continue praying for that situation. Well, I'd like to have you, invite you back to the uh, study of the uh, New Testament ecclesiology. And today we want to look at the third church that we find in the book of Revelation. It's found in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And I think we're going to start out with just reading that passage and, um, and then uh, go, go on from there. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow or you can follow on the PowerPoint. It reads like this. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny. My faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold to the doctrine, uh, doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. The church at Pergamos, like the two other churches that we studied, the one at, start, uh, at the, in the previous messages, has a, a relevant message for us today. The church at Pergamos was often referred to as the compromising church for reasons that we'll discuss later on. And so as we come back to this study, I just want to, uh, I want to reiterate that my passion for God's bride, the church of Jesus Christ, to be pure and without spot and blemish, continues to increase within me. Uh, my concern, uh, as I, uh, I, I, just, I, just really, I just really sense in my spirit that we are, we are coming rapidly to the to the finish line and and my concern is that is that when I take in consideration all the people who are without Christ and uh, who need to be connected to the groom Jesus Christ and uh, as we as we head towards Christ's return uh, that that is concerning to me and it and it causes me to keep asking the question how actively am I pursuing those who do not know Christ? 
and uh, who are standing on the precipice of hell. And I just continue to pray that God would give to me a passion and uh, that I would not allow the, to, to settle into a comfy state of, of, uh, of obliviousness and just my own little world and my own little comforts, but that I would, that I would passionately seek out the souls who, who are without Christ. But also equally, if not more disturbing to me, are, are those who, who believe that they are connected to Jesus Christ, and maybe to some degree are, yet are compromising in their relationship with Jesus, or as Scripture aptly puts it, those who have a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. One of the conditions that Jesus predicted that would come to pass at the end of the age, that passage in Matthew 24, particularly verse, verse uh, uh, 12, is a condition that we know as onemia. And uh, you may not be aware of that condition, although if I give you the English rendering instead of the Greek, we would uh, soon understand that it's the word lawless or the word iniquity. One of the things that Jesus said would happen is that the people's lives would become lawless. There would be lawlessness or iniquity, I believe the King James uses. And unless we think that Jesus was talking about the lawlessness of those who are without Christ or in the broad sense of the word, the, the sin that is out there in mainstream and in the world, uh, I, I think he was really talking about something. Well, he was addressing, first of all, he was addressing the disciples. And some of the things that he said that I'd like to bring out, I think helps us realize that I think he may have been talking about people that who were really believing in Jesus Christ and becoming lawless in their own hearts. In the, uh, in, in, in the, uh, when he was speaking in the context, he, he said that because of lawlessness, and I'm not going to turn to that passage, but it says, because of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. Now, if he were talking about the lawlessness of non-believers, then why would he be talking about growing cold? Cold cannot grow cold. But when there is, you can only grow cold when there has previously been warmth or hotness. And, and so... I think he was, he's, he's addressing something that we, that we really need to take note of. Furthermore, I think right in the next verse that he says that he who endures to the end shall be saved. So that really caught my attention. And so I, I, I believe he was talking about followers of Jesus becoming lawless in their heart. And if that is really the case, and that we have this kind of prophecy given by Jesus, then, then perhaps we have a problem at our hands. And the problem comes by virtue of lawlessness residing in the hearts of believers as we near the end of time. 
Jesus specifically addressed that many will grow cold. Is like I said, many will grow cold. Many. The word many will grow cold. And we don't have, we don't know what that means, except that there's not going to be a few. Many's heart, many people's heart will grow cold because of the influence of lawlessness. And, and just to break down that word a little bit, what, what do we need, mean by lawlessness? I, I, I went back and did a little bit of a word study. And, and when we really go to maybe the root of where this word onemia comes from is the word anamus or anamus. It means not subject to law without law. And the question that I had to ask myself is, does that sound strangely familiar to us today? I had an interesting conversation recently with a friend of mine who, uh, who, was def- who was defending that the majority of the people in this country uh, have Christian values and they live by Christian values unlike those who have anti-Christian values in Washington. And she became a bit defensive when I objected to this thought of the United States being a Christian nation. And my, my, my argument is simply derived from the fact that when a nation regresses to a level of, of, uh, of where we find ourselves, I think we have reason to question whether we have Christian values. Let's just do a couple of them. Now, this is the big ones out there, and, and, and we have compromise. By the way, I was just thinking about the youth this morning. I just, I just really appreciate our youth. I just, I, I just think that we have some, some good, solid, and good energy here. And, and one of the w- things that I want to talk to you specifically about this morning is on this area of compromise. I wish I would have understood better at your age wh- how how my decision today affects the next 20 years. Um, and and just, just, to, just to ask yourselves the questions, you know, many times in, in, my, in my struggle of trying to, to find what I believe, you know, I would ask the question, well, what's wrong with it? And, and even though that may be an okay question to ask, Maybe a better question to ask us ourselves is, what direction is this going to take me? What, what's going to, how's this going to produce godliness in my life? Will it produce godliness? And if it will, go for it. But, but oftentimes I, I, I took the, more of the stance that, well, if it's not wrong, then why not engage? Well, Paul says that all things are lawful but not all things are necessary. And maybe what he was trying to say was that maybe it starts taking us down a path of compromise that at some point will cause us to have a lawless attitude. And so when I look across, when I look across the statistics that are at hand, that are before us, when I, when I see statistics saying that 50 plus percent of marriages in the United States are ending up in divorce and many of those are being remarried. 
I have questions to raise. What, re, or to, I have, I have the right to question whether whether we have Christian values. But when I hear a statistic that says one, and I just heard this Friday night, one in three children are growing up in a home where the biological father is not at home. Whether we have Christian values. When, when I see the statistic that 57 million abortions have taken place since 1973 in the United States alone, since Roe met Wade in court, uh, I've got reasons to question whether we're a Christian nation. Legalized drugs for medical purposes. Marijuana is now legalized in many, many states. Euthanizing, toying with the idea of euthanizing our elderly. Hey, I've got reasons to question our value system. A total breakdown of, of our court system where, where there are just ridiculous and unscrupulous lawsuits that are taking place that has a trickle effect in so many areas of our lives. Um, and then toting, the, the, open, the, the open toting of, of the homosexual lifestyle is an acceptable alternative uh, lifestyle. Well, listen, we're, we're far, far, far from the principles that I find in this gospel here this morning. I wish it would be otherwise. I wish I could stand here <laughs> And, and there's a certain sense of security that, that, that envelops me when I think of, of, of living in a country where there are Christian values. But the bottom line is, it is, it is quickly fading away. It is, it is spinning out of control rapidly. And, and, uh, and, and my question is, then, then my question is, and these are just some biggies out there. There are many other areas of compromise, many other areas of compromise in Scripture. Then my question becomes, how many of these, how many of people in our, in our Christian churches in the Western world are involved in any of these things right here? You see, it is quite possible that I could go to, to most homes in Napanee and possibly across the Midwest and probably in many homes in the United States and knock on their door and ask them if they're Christians and probably a lot of them would respond, yes, I'm a Christian. Yet there's a huge disconnect between what they say they are and how they actually live. It just seems like there's a huge disconnect you see, when there, there's a stat out there that says 50% of marriages end in divorce, and when it says that, that there's an even higher percentage of those who call themselves Christian than those who don't that are ending up in this, er, in this, in this situation, I've got reasons to question how much we have compromised. When pastors and shepherds Defend the gay lifestyle as an acceptable alternative. Hey, we are far from the throne of God. I have a clip. I have an article that I clipped out probably 15 years ago when we were living in Sudaneros. An article that was, in, that was in the Winnipeg Press. 
about a church in Pennsylvania, a Mennonite church in Pennsylvania, who had a service of blessing for a couple who was parting ways in their marriage. Um, we need help. When, when our members in our churches, Christian churches, go to court to settle their differences and feel justified in doing so, we're heading down a slippery slope. And, there's, and, there, and then there's just a lot of areas that I'm not talking about. Could it be that the church has bought in on the Nicolaitan mindset? And if so, what is our way out? Well, I want to talk about that a little bit. And so I want to go back to the message or to the text in, to, in order to get the context of what it's talking about here when it's referring to the Nicolaitan doctrine. If we go back to the beginning of the text, it says that he, th these things say he who has a sharp two-edged sword. The message was also given to uh, the church at Pergamos by one who had a sharp two-edged sword. Now, I find it interesting that just in the previous chapter, in chapter 1 of Revelation, John records the, the, um, the, in the revelation that he had of Jesus Christ, and he describes Jesus Christ in these words. He says, He was like he, uh, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in the furnace, and his voice as the waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a two sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Friends, I don't know if you know how appropriate it is that this describes Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John, in the book of John, Jesus introduces himself as the Word. It is the word logos in, in the Greek, meaning a divine revelation. We refer to the entire passage of Scripture, the entire Scriptures, as the logos of God. It is the divine revelation of God. It encapsulates the entirety of God. Hebrews 4 then comes along in verse 12. He says, For the word of God, for the logos of God, the entire scriptures of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The word of God is the means by which we defend or by which the enemy is defeated. It is the equipment that Jesus gave to us to defeat the devil. In, in, in another, in, in another uh, passage in John, he reiterates this truth even further. In, in John chapter 8, verse uh, 31 and 32, Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed, If you abide in my word, if you abide in my logos, if you abide in here, you plug in deeply in this Logos, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. 
This was just impacted to us again recently. We have had, our family has, has faced some severe attacks from the devil these past several weeks. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail except to say that, that Satan is out to kill, steal, and to destroy. It doesn't matter how, what way, or who he targets except for the fact that he's out after those who are in Christ Jesus. He already has the others. And I'll tell you, the power of the word, when, when, and, and, and we had, there were some manifestations that, that in which he, in which he uh, attacked. And, and I'll tell you what, if you quote the scripture to Satan, he cannot stand in the presence of scripture. Uh, what brought on the manifestation, and there was just a lot of confusion but what brought on the manifestation is when I started quoting to Satan, I said, Satan, you are of the father of the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. You are a murderer from the beginning of bode not of the truth, because there is no truth in you. When you speak, you lie, because you are uh, a liar and the father of it. And that triggered a manifestation in which he babbled and, and whatever else. And then just taking scripture and saying, that we stand upon the word of God. Jesus defeated you at the cross. You are defeated and you must go. Jesus is Lord. The wicked one cannot. Tell. And just taking scripture and speaking it, he cannot stand in our presence. It's not me. It's not me that, that, that gives me that authority. It's the power of the word. It's the power of the Logos. And, um, <clears throat> and so I just find it interesting that Jesus is... is is presented here he presents it with a sharp two-edged sword out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword it is the word of god that defeats satan and we have that ability to use as well keep this in mind because jesus then later in this same text jesus brings judgment on those who do not repent with the sword of his mouth it says with the sword of his mouth we will be judged by the standard of God's word. And by the way, if you want to know whether you're compromising or not, go to Scripture. Line it up with Scripture. And that will soon tell you if you're compromising or not. And if you are compromising, it is upon this Scripture by which you will be judged. And so just my encouragement to us is to align ourselves with the Scripture. Now, we see then Jesus going into the next part of this passage, and, G and, and, and he acknowledges three things about this church. He acknowledges their works, in which he does all seven churches. He gives recognition to their works, and then he gives recognition to the fact of where they dwell. It says, uh, he makes a peculiar comment. He says that it is Satan's throne, or it is where Satan's throne is. I thought, oh, that's interesting. And the third thing that he gives recognition to is that he recognizes that there are those who faithfully hold on to Jesus, even to the point of martyrdom. And he points out about Antipas, who was, uh, I, I, uh, who was martyred, they say, uh, who was roasted slowly over a fire. And yet he was faithful to the end. But the, th the thought that caught my attention was that thought of, 
where Satan's throne is. And, and so it did some research on Pergamos and what that means. This is the, this is the hill uh, upon which Pergamos was, was built. Um, I also had a, another, uh, a, um, another view, a topographical view. But what I wanted to show here is, on, if, if you notice, there's a, there's a connection to many of these ancient cities. Uh, I think it was on Ephesus that I may have pointed out, the amphitheater. Well, here is their amphitheater. Okay, see that area right there? Uh, it, I, I, I'm thinking that it was around 10,000 seats. So it held around 10,000 people. Uh, big amphitheater, and that's where a lot of the uh, that's where a lot of the people were martyred. But it was also situated in such a way where where it was very uh, secure and safe um, because of the. Uh, because of, of its location, it's strategically built on the hill, and the enemy could not come and destroy it very easily. Pergamos was a stronghold of satanic power. At the time of this writing, at the time that this was written, Pergamos had been the capital city in, the region of, of, of the, in this region for more than 300 years. It was a well-established city. One of the things that it was noted for was, was for its culture and its education. And it had one of the greatest libraries in the ancient world. It's said that it, they had a library that held more than 200,000 volumes. Now that's a lot of reading material. And so they sort of prided themselves. And this is the area, if you've ever heard about the, the Greek uh, literature and the philosophers of, of the Grecian world, this is, the, this is the seat of it right here in Pergamos. And, and a lot of your, your Eastern religion comes out of this. It was also a religious city. It had temples to the Greek gods and the Roman gods, just like the other cities or churches that we talked about or the cities that we talked about. And, and in this particular place, they actually had three temples that were dedicated to the Roman Empire. But one of the other things uh, that it was noted for was a worship to a deity known as Asclepia. Asclepia was a god, was the god of healing and knowledge. There was a medical school at this temple in Pergamos, and so because of this famous temple, uh, there were many of, of, of a Roman god, there were many people who were sick and diseased that would come to this city from all over the Roman Empire and, and would flock to Pergamos to find relief for their ailment. According to one source, uh, I want to, to read what the one source said about this temple and the god uh, Asclepius. It says that the sufferers were, to spend, were allowed to spend the night in the darkness of the temple. In the temple, there were tame snakes, during the night, the sufferer might be touched by one of the snakes as it glided over the ground on which they lay. The touch of the snake was held to be the touch of God himself, and the touch was to bring health and healing. When I read that, I thought about the article that I just read this past week uh, on Drudge Report about a new type of a massage parlor. Did anybody notice that or read that? that is found over in one of the eastern countries where they have 
three python snakes slithering over your body as a type of of a deep re- relaxation and uh, and wellness. Uh, I would go into a deep relaxation, but that's because I would have passed out. <laughs> well, it may have been the combination of all these things that caused Jesus to make the pronouncement of judgment against the city as the dwelling place of Satan. However, in spite of, of the negative elements that, that we find in this culture, there was a remnant of faithfulness in the church, and that is encouraging, is it not? There has always been a remnant. There has always been, and there always will be a remnant of people who will stay true and faithful, and I want each one of you to be that part. I really do. But he did have a few things against them. It's a little bit sketchy uh, in this passage of the things that he really had against them. There were some things that we know for sure, and I want to just highlight some of those things that we know for sure. There were those who held to the doctrine of Balaam, it says. And then he sort of explains that. He says, Balaam taught Balak, to put a stumbling block in front of the Israelites. And he did this in two ways, by offering meats offered to idols, or eating meats offered to idols, and the Israeli, getting the Israeli men to commit immorality with the heathen women. And then the third thing that we know for certain is that they, the, the church here also had those who held to the doctrine of, of the Nicolaitans. Now, like I said, some of these some of these are, are a bit sketchy at best. The story of Balaam and Balak are found in Numbers twenty two to twenty five. You can read that, and it would be it would appear as if as if the this story the the doctrine of of uh, Jesus is simply referring to this doctrine of Balaam. Uh, and, and, is, ex- and is, is explaining this doctrine just briefly uh, by what Balaam did to Balak. And uh, I, I believe that he is making a comparison. <clears throat> this is important. I want you to catch this. I think he's making a comparison between the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Rather then bringing up two separate issues. Does that make sense? I don't think that the issue was that they had the doctrine of Balaam that they were following, but he was making a comparison. He was saying there are those who, there, there are those who follow the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and it's very similar to the doctrine of Balaam. Okay? Keep with me. One of the reasons, or two reasons, that I've come to this conclusion is that notice how he ties both of these doctrines together by first talking about the doctrine of of Balaam, and then he says, thus you have those who follow the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Okay, so he he ties it together by saying, thus you have. And secondly, uh, that brought me to this conclusion is the fact that about along the same time that this was written, Paul also wrote the book of Romans, and in that book, he said, hey, listen, 
Meat is meat, even if it's offered to idols. And if your conscience allows you to eat it, eat freely if, it's, if, if you've given thanks for it. And so if, I, I, don't think, I don't think Jesus was saying that, that, um, that the church of Pergamos uh, was having issues because they were eating meat offered to idols. He was saying that there's a principle that you're violating that uh, caused these people back in Israel's time to stumble. Okay? So what is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? That's what we want to find out. Now we're down to the meat of it, okay? What is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? Because this is really the crooks of Jesus' lament with this church. It's a bit difficult to know for sure because the only other reference that is given to the Nicolaitans in Scripture is when he talked about the church at Ephesus. And he commended them by saying that you hate those who follow the Nicolaitans, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, of which things I also hate. That's the only other time in Scripture that it's mentioned. So we're a little bit fuzzy there. But there is a passage in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6. If you want to turn over there, I also put it on PowerPoint. Acts chapter 6, that may shed a little bit of light. And it reads like this. This what the context of this of this verse here is when the pastors of the church at Jerusalem were being overcome by all the needs of the people. And uh, they were spending so much time running after the needs of the people that they weren't studying in, uh, getting enough time to study the word and to teach it and to pray it says. And so they said, "Hey, why don't we call out seven men?" Men, and they had, a, they, they, they had some prerequisites. Men of, of, uh, of uh, faith and, and of, uh, I forget what all they were. And let's pick out seven men and ordain them to be the servers of tables so that we can devote ourselves to studying the word and to prayer. And so that's what they did. And that's what this verse is talking about. It says, and the same pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicamer, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. <clears throat> According to several church historians who recorded many of the events that occurred in the earliest time of, of church history, say that the Nicolaitans were spiritual descendants of this man, Nicholas of Antioch, who was ordained as one of the, the seven deacons, the original deacons there in, in, uh, in, uh, uh, in, in Jerusalem. So what do we know about this man, Nicholas? Well, there's a couple things that we know. It says that he was a proselyte, which, uh, which means, which tells us that he was not born a Jew, but had converted from paganism to Judaism. Okay? He was a heathen, and had converted to the to a, to a Jewish uh, a religion. He must have also have had a second conversion when he turned from Judaism to Christianity. And so, so this was different from the other six men who, uh, 
who uh, were deacons with them, who were, were um, uh, from a pure Hebrew line. Nicholas had previously been immersed in the, act, in the activities of the occult. Obviously, he was not afraid of taking an opposing position, which I think is evidenced by the fact that he had the ability to change religions twice. Um, I think he was probably a free thinker. He was not intimidated with new ideas. He was a visionary, probably kind of a person. He was very open to changing if it needed to be changed. And, uh, and, and, and he was able to switch hats, religious hats, as it were. It's also said that according to some of the historical traditions, it says that, that Nicholas taught a doctrine of compromise, which is, uh, which, which, in which he, he uh, took elements of the occult and Judaism and Christianity and sort of aimed, intermingled them into a concoction of, of um, he, 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 he had no problem continuing to fellowship with those who uh, were immersed in the uh, paganism of the Roman, of the Roman worship. <clears throat> and given the culture of that day, there was a lot of paganism going on. And uh, there was a lot of influence. So it would appear that Nicholas of Antioch was syncretic. He was a syncretist who would, e, who, who would take different types of religions and bring them together. He had, he had a tolerance for the occult and for the paganism that was around him. And he mingled that in with Christianity. Now, when we were up north working with the native people, many of them had come out of the occult or had come out of, of the animistic belief system. The animists are ones who think that there is life in everything. <clears throat> There's life in trees, which there is, but uh, it, it has an energy that it can give to us. <clears throat> Animals have, have, have a life that can give energy to us. Earth, Mother Earth has energy that can give life to us. <clears throat> and so that's why when they would go out and they would shoot a moose and they would take something from Mother Earth, they would always give back to Mother Earth. And it was usually in the form of tobacco. They would always sprinkle tobacco in the area where they would shoot a moose because they were always giving something back because they took something from Mother Earth. And there was many other things. Uh, I could tell you story after story of, of, of experiences that they told me uh, in their animistic belief system. One of the things that they would do in their culture and still do today, and there's a strong push to go back into it, is the powwows. And uh, I was at several powwows. I say this cautiously, uh, but because I think we need to have... Um, I think we need to be guarded <laughs> of how much we immerse ourselves in some of these paganistic religious activities. Um, but um, they would always sit, the elders would sit around this drum, and they would begin drumming, and, and then they would begin chanting, and, and, and there was a, an eerie 
devilish type of a chant that was that just was that just did not sound human and uh and 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 they did this to call forth the spirits that's why they did it they were calling forth the spirits now there were times that they had powwows of a competition where that may not have it was more a historical type of a of a powwow but there were times when they had powwows in which they would call forth the spirits and all kinds of things happen. Where was I going with this? The place I was going with this is that people that came out of that occultism, that animistic belief system, and became Christians, most of them wanted nothing to do with the past. They wanted a clean break. I remember Mary Elders telling me, I know the fear that stuff brings me. Don't, don't, don't try to get me to go back into that. But, but there was a strong push from the white community, and can I even say the white Christian community, to take their animistic, what was once dedicated to Satan, and bring this over into the light now, and use this to... Uh, as, a, as a good way to worship God. Let's use the drum in our worship services. And let's chant, but let's chant to the glory of God. No, that's right. Mary Ellers say, why would I want to go back into that? That's just where it came from. And, and, and that is what, that is what the, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans did. They, they, synchron, they synchronized different religions. And I'll tell you, um, <clears throat> when the, we, we could wrap up the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is to have one foot in both worlds, and then one needn't be so strict about separation from the world in order to be a Christian. I think that just sort of encapsulates the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Uh, I, have, I have serious questions when I hear churches today in our Western world bringing in these singing groups who look and act and have music that come from a dark place in our past, and they bring it into our churches to try to worship God. I have serious questions with that. And I know I'm not very popular probably for saying that. But I think we need to draw a line in the sand. Scripture says that you should not have any, anything to do that looks like the works of darkness. Why do you want to mix the two together? It's, it's an area of compromise that I think the Western world has failed in the Western church has, has greatly failed in. And maybe it's because we've begun to compromise at other levels. Um, <clears throat> whenever we have a level of compromise, it will weaken the version of Christianity that is without power and conviction, which in essence is a defeated and a worldly type of Christianity.
when I look at the Western church at large, would you agree that for the most part, it would seem as if it is a powerless form of activity that has compromised in so many areas of the gospel? And I'm, I, I, don't want, I, w- I don't want to sound judgmental. What I'm calling us to do is take a look in our own hearts and just ask the question, have we done the same in any way? Have I done the same in any way? Is there any area in my life in which I've compromised? And then if we have to make the changes. Compromisation uh, produces weak and anemic churches that are powerless. We keep looking at the church of Acts and saying, why, why, why don't we see that today? I've heard testimonies of people across in third world countries who are saying, you know what, we don't want your churches to come over to our churches because of the influence they're bringing. You see, when, when believers allow sin and compromise to be in their lives, it drains away the power and the work of the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit that resides in the life of the believer. I think we just need to, we, we need to take a radical stand against sin and wrong. We dare not compromise against Scripture. There is a strong cry. There is a strong urge and a cry to extend grace in our churches today, and perhaps even here in our home church. And I couldn't agree more because because patience and long-suffering are are a fruit of the Spirit. It is certainly something that we need to extend to our brother who is struggling. But let us not confuse extending grace with enabling and tolerating sin. I want to say that charitably. Grace gives us the power to live above sin, not in sin. And so when we're trying to make excuse for wrong and sin, that's no longer grace. That's tolerance. And so let's not confuse the two. Grace gives us, yes, the ability to live above sin. Let's be careful that we don't compromise sin in an effort to extend grace. What some call an extension of grace is simply a trite form of tolerance. And so... I would just like to encourage us this morning, each one of us, let's just take a look into our own hearts. Let's take a look into our body here. And um, while there is concern out there, the larger church perhaps, let's just, let's start right here at home. That's a good place to start. And let's just ask God to reveal any areas of compromise that we have made, that I have made. And then let's take steps to correct that. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans, Today is now largely taught that the gospel of Christ has made God's law of no effect. That by believing, we are released from the necessity to be a doer of the word. In closing, I'd like to read James 1, 21 to 25. As I read that, I was just energized by this passage of scripture. I'm going to read this 
I'm going to pray, and then I'll let uh, Laverne come up and close as he wishes. James 1, 21 to 25. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of that work, this one will be blessed in what he does. I want to be that kind of person. And I trust each one of you want to be that kind of person. Let's pray. Father, in the name